Intramuros Under Quarantine 2021 Face masks, half-empty streets, the listless beeping of cars A lone kalesa claps down a pandemic-stricken road It could be a ghost town, and it is no doubt full of ghosts Much that stands in Intramuros is ancient in name only But its spirit stretches far back into the ages Safeguarded by the walls that surround and enclose what the Spanish called Insignia y Siempre Leal Ciudad, the distinguished and ever-loyal city. Now wind the clock back exactly 123 years, lift the shroud of the pandemic, dig up the fake green of the golf course and fill those moats with water, tear down the replica facades and make it as they once were, turn the roads and cars and the rest of the modern world into dust thrown up by the digging of trenches. Hoist up the drawbridges, return the cannons to the battlements, slam down the metal of the ravelin gates. It is 1898 and Manila is about to come under siege. Welcome to the Colonial Department, the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In this episode, we take a look at the rise and fall of an enduring symbol of the occupation of the Philippines. This is Season 2, Episode 4, The Walls of Intramuros. Did we say Manila was about to come under siege? Well, actually, no, it wasn't. Yes, it was true that the Spanish were about to lose control of their city. They knew it too. They just didn't want it to fall to Filipinos, who had successfully pulled off a revolution that was now at risk of being undercut by the USA. So an under-the-table deal was struck with the Americans, who were landing in greater and greater numbers outside Intramuros. The Spanish would surrender the city to the US but only if the Americans would arrange a mock battle and help the soon-to-be ex-colonial rulers save face. The Americans agreed. In the wet, rainy morning of August 13, Admiral George Dewey's fleet moved into position and began shelling the Intramuros walls with their 5- and 8-inch cannons. After a brief bombardment, the American soldiers advanced, trudging through wetland to find empty entrenchments Spanish soldiers who didn't bother to fire back, and Manila's gates ready and open. In fact, surrender documents were already waiting to be signed in the Governor General's office. Despite a casualty list that numbered 6 Americans and 49 Spaniards, the Filipinos could see right through the deception. It was a mystery, Emilio Aguinaldo wrote sardonically, that no one was firing on the American invaders from atop the walls. For hundreds of centuries, the walls of Intramuros had stood, defending the city from outside invasion. This sham battle of August 13, 1898 was probably not one of those walls' finest moments. When Martin de Goiti first sailed into Manila Bay in 1570, he found an earthwork fort that guarded the mouth of the Pasig River protected by wooden palisades from coconut trunks with bronze cannon mounted on the top. This ring of tree trunks was not enough to protect the natives who fought back against these invaders. 
the conquistadors razed the settlement to the ground. A year later, when this plot of land was ceded to Miguel Lopez de Legazpi, the Spanish built over the remains of the burned-down fort and then fortified the wooden walls. From the very beginning of their takeover of Manila, the Spaniards concentrated the entire clenched fist of their power there enclosed by these fortifications. Again, the wooden palisades would prove to be insufficient. In 1574, a Chinese corsair named Limahong, who sailed in from the north with 62 ships and thousands of armed men, succeeded in killing Martin de Goiti and briefly taking over Manila. When a Spanish military engineer was brought in the next year to oversee the rebuilding of the city, he made this suggestion. Instead of building a fort to protect Manila, what if we turn the entire Manila into a fort? Sociologist Edwin Wise called this new Manila a green zone, the same name given to the headquarters of the American occupation of Iraq in the 2000s, which was protected by blast walls and barbed wire. Entry was strictly controlled, and if you could get inside, you would find well-manicured lawns and gyms and offices, and an earnest attempt to create a little piece of America inside Baghdad. In the green zone, a small handful of coalition forces projected their power outwards forcefully, like a boulder slamming into a stream or a cluster bomb cratering a building. The small clutch of occupiers living inside the green zone lived in constant fear of attack. Intramuros was much the same, hence the walls. Stone for the fortifications was mined by native Indians in the quarries of Montalban and Guadalupe and Mekawayan and reshaped into the walls of the city. As Alfonso J. Aluit wrote in his book By Sword and Fire, Soon, the city of palm and bamboo would disappear, and in its place, massive ramparts of brick, adobe, and tile would rear their formidable facades. Governor General Santiago de Vera gave the name of his patron saint, Santiago James the Apostle, to the fort that was built. Saint James was the patron saint of Spain, and his name on the fort was considered auspicious. Beginning in the late 1500s, the stone fortifications were built over the course of decades, continually added upon or renovated. Spanish power in the archipelago was thus concentrated intramuros, or in English, inside the walls. The walls got their first challenge less than a decade after they were first thrown up. In 1603, the Chinese community living outside Manila rose up in rebellion, a preemptive act as fear of a pogrom rippled among the Sangres. I talk more in depth about this insurrection in the very first episode of this podcast, but let's take a close look at how the Chinese laid siege to Intramuros. A soldier's report written three years later described their attack. They came at night in two machines that they had made with so great skill that one side was low and the other high, so they overtopped the walls of the city. Thus, they could with very little trouble throw 30 men into the city each time they attacked. These siege towers would later be knocked down by the defenders' artillery, and the Chinese would be unsuccessful in breaching the walls. 
159 years later, the British would succeed where the rebels failed. By this time, the walls were already in a shoddy, decrepit state. Writing in his journal, Acting Governor General Archbishop Manuel Rojo observed that the walls and gates that defended the city were old, defective, fallen apart, and moreover, badly designed from the start. This was bad news, especially when a multi-ethnic English invasion force, numbering around 6,800 men, was getting ready to capture your city. The British made short work of those walls. 300 yards away from the bastion of San Diego, on the south side of Intramuros, perhaps where Luneta is now, the invaders set up a battery of 24-pound cannons, eight of them, dug into trenches and protected by fascines and gabions. On October 1, 1762, the battery opened fire, accompanied by cannon fire from the sea from their invading ships. It rained metal that day. Archbishop Manuel Rojo said that more than 4,000 cannonballs were thrown at the city. The massive bombardment ripped a breach in the vicinity of the Baluarte de San Diego. Musket and grapeshot fire over the next few days prevented the Spanish defenders from attempting repairs. In the morning of October 5, British troops poured in through the breach, engineers stabling the frontline troops hammering the walls that had been punched through by the artillery. The walls had failed Manila. British soldiers marched inside, then pillaged the city and raped many of its citizens. This Battle of Manila kicked off two years of mismanagement that nevertheless, for the first time in more than a century, broke up the galleon trade monopoly and opened up the Philippines to international commerce. The years marched on. Bigger and stronger guns meant that the medieval city walls that Intramuros was based on would no longer be effective protection against modern artillery. In the 134 years after the invasion of Britain, the walls of Intramuros became more symbolic rather than defensive. Perhaps during the Philippine Revolution, they could have been called into action again as Aguinaldo's army surrounded the besieged capital ready to plant the Philippine flag over the walled enclave that had ruled over the archipelago for centuries. That would have been a brutal what-if, a real Battle of Manila, Filipino revolutionaries besieging the capital with cannons and grape shot and sheer nerve, breaking down the walls that long shielded the Spanish overlords. But in this universe we're living in, we got the sham version, the stage show set up by Spain and the United States to fool the world into thinking the Americans had won Manila valiantly. Spoiler alert, no one was fooled. Within Intramuros, the United States found a dilapidated city long past its prime. The aristocrats of Spain had long moved out of the walled city and into the trendy suburbs of Quiapo and Binondo and Ermita. The moats had turned into mosquito-filled lagoons and the walls were pockmarked with years of neglect. The Americans threw open the gates and filled the moats with earth, turning the grounds just outside the walls into parks and golf courses. There was talk too of tearing down the walls, but plans never came into fruition. No longer the concentrated center of colonial power, Intramuros became, throughout the reign of America, 
a historical curio, a relic of a bygone age. Then World War II came and the walls came into action one last time. In the final, insane year of the global conflict, the walls performed their ancient function, protecting an occupation force. This time, it was the Japanese. Inside and outside Intramuros, the Imperial Army, facing the spearhead of an American assault, turned their frustration and rage inwards and transformed Manila into a killing field. On the ground, women were raped, babies were speared on bayonets, and scores were massacred in executions or reprisals or crossfire. From the sky poured a ceaseless barrage of American bombs and artillery. Caught between its two occupiers, Manila turned into a living hell. On February 17, 1945, 8-inch howitzers trained their guns on the walls between the Parian and Victoria gates. A 105mm howitzer, meanwhile, sent 150 rounds of high explosive into the south side of the Quezon gate. For six days, the bombardment on the buildings inside the walled city was unrelenting. On February 21, more artillery punched holes in the north and east side of Intramuros. Then, on February 23, the American assault on the walled city commenced. An amphibious landing from the north side of the Pasig River and a land incursion from the south. 47 years before, American troops had strolled into Intramuros in a fake battle to take the walled city. This time, the fighting was real and brutal and ugly. And when it was finished, Intramuros would be nothing but ruins. February 23, 1945. Tanks and howitzers and mortars across the Pasig River as well as machine guns mounted on tall buildings facing the city, all trained their sights on the walls and buildings of Intramuros. As fiery steel from the 240mm guns arced past the walls to bombard nearly every building inside the city, 8mm howitzers punched pinpoint holes in the walls, followed by a barrage of unfused high-explosive shells from the 155mm guns. These shells would burrow deeper into the moss-covered stone before exploding, further cracking the fortifications. Then the artillery loaded shells with delayed fuses. This ammunition detonated on impact, ripping wide gaping breaches across the ancient stone. In just one hour of fighting, 3,700 shells were volleyed against Intramuros. 185 tons of high explosives were dropped all over the city while 45 tons of smoke grenades and incendiaries were unloaded over the small patch of land that, for centuries, had governed over the Philippines. Through the breaches poured in American troops under a veil of smoke grenades and covering fire. The walls of Intramuros were no more. In the shadow of their jagged remains, under a ceaseless rain of steel, the two occupiers fought, street by street, building by building. All around them, the distinguished and ever-loyal city burned to the ground.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Colonial Department. Here are the references I used in this episode. The description of the 1898 Battle of Manila was taken from Leon Wolfe's 1960 article, The Sham Battle of Manila, published in American Heritage. Details about the Iraqi Green Zone were lifted from William Langeweich's 2004 article, Welcome to the Green Zone, published in The Atlantic. Edwin Wise's 2019 book, Manila, City of Islands, published by the Ateneo de Manila University Press, was also invaluable in its insights on the evolution of the city. The construction and development of Intramuros, as well as the narration of the 1945 Battle of Manila, was taken from Alfonso J. Aluit's 1994 book, By Sword and Fire, The Destruction of Manila in World War II, 3 February to 3 March 1945, published by Bookmark. Details of the 1603 Chinese Rebellion and the 1762 British Invasion were documents published in, variously, The Philippine Islands, 1493 to 1803, volumes 14 and 49, edited by Emma Blair and James Alexander Robertson. Documentary Sources of Philippine History, edited by Gregorio Zaide, and Naval and Military Memoirs of Great Britain from 1727 to 1783, edited by Robert Beetson. Quotations from sources were read by Anya Ong. The Colonial Department was created and produced by Leo Mangubat. Follow us on Instagram at The Colonial Department.